We come now, we're going to open up God's Word as we continue our study on the Kingdom series, and, uh, but I want to begin by asking this question. Have you ever had a big event or circumstance happen in your life that just totally changed how you viewed the world? Maybe it was something that kind of turned your perspective upside down a little bit. Something happened that maybe added a whole new dimension to how you thought about your life or your future, your job. I've had many of these happen throughout my life. Certainly examples would be getting married, having children would qualify. You know, one day I'm dating this girl, and the next day it's our wedding day, and then boom, I'm married, and all of a sudden the world doesn't seem the same anymore, does it? Or my wife is pregnant, and we go to the hospital to give birth to our first child, and a few days later we return home, and there's this little one in tow, and now it's not just the two of us in the home anymore. And suddenly there's a whole new dimension of responsibilities that have been added to us. Or here's another one. Uh, What if the Chicago Cubs actually win the World Series this year? (laughs) You know, they would no longer be the lovable losers, would they? We'd wake up in a very different world, wouldn't we? Or what about the presidential election that's happening this fall? You have two main candidates, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, and the nation is going to vote on November 1st, and on November 2nd, you're going to wake up and enter into the world with a certain frame of mind, depending on the results of that election. So sometimes big things happen, changes around us that cause us to think about the world in a different way, and we can make a long list of things that happen in our own personal life or in history that have added a different dimension to how we think about things and see them. Perhaps even it was a sad thing, a tragedy or an illness. Many things come up that change our perspective in some way. And we're in the midst of a teaching series on the kingdom of God as presented in the book of Matthew. Our text today describes one of these big history-changing moments when God got rid of an old kingdom and he evolved it into a new kingdom. When God took what was once practiced and understood in one way and he changed it by adding an entirely new dimension to it, which forever altered how God's people considered what it meant to be one of his children. And this change is very clearly seen between the contrast of the two testaments. There's the Old Testament, the Bible, and the New Testament. And we could say, in a sense, that these two testaments, they represent two different kingdoms. The Old Testament contains the story of the kingdom of Israel. And the New Testament contains the story of the kingdom of God or of heaven. And while there are many differences between these two kingdoms, they are very closely linked. In fact, I think it is right to say that we should see the New Testament kingdom as being an evolution of or progressive development of the Old Testament kingdom. And today, as Christians, we live as part of this New Testament kingdom of God. But by doing so, we're faced with a difficult tension. We have before us, for example, the scriptures of the Old Testament, which at a cursory glance, some of them often seem outdated or irrelevant, unnecessary. The Old Testament has all sorts of laws and teachings that seem difficult to apply to us today. We even have the tension of God maybe sometimes seems a little different in the New Testament than he does in the Old How do we deal with these tensions? Well, we're currently working through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to continue in Matthew chapter 5 today. And a large portion of the Sermon on the Mount deals with this question. What has changed between the Old Kingdom and the New Kingdom? And what relevance specifically do the Old Testament Scriptures have for Christians today? That's going to be the focus of our study and message today. So turn with me, if you would, of our primary text. is in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Let me read 17 through verse 20, which is our core focus today. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And the central focus of Jesus' teaching in these verses is to help us understand the relevance of the Old Testament scriptures, what they have for the New Testament Christian. And his main answer is given in verse 17. And then for the rest of the chapter, 31 verses, Jesus then expands and illustrates on the point he makes in verse 17. In fact, for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, all the way through the end of chapter 7, all generally flows out of what Jesus says in verse 17. And so let's look at that verse again. Jesus says there, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus refers to the law and the prophets here. And what he means by that is really the, old, the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. There's many sorts of literary genres in the Old Testament, but the Jews generally grouped the Old Testament into two big categories. There was the Old Testament law, which was roughly the first half of the Old Testament, and the prophets, which was roughly the second half. And so Jesus is speaking about the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures here. And in doing so, he says he has not come to abolish them. They are not irrelevant. They're not outdated. The Greek here literally means to destroy. Jesus has not come to destroy the Old Testament. This is emphasized again in verse 18 when he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, the the iota and the dot, they were the smallest markings in the Hebrew and the Greek language. It's kind of like us saying today, we need to cross our T's and dot our I's. Little details that can easily be forgotten. Jesus says here, Not even the smallest details of the Old Testament scriptures will fall into obscurity. Now, we were given great evidence of this uh, just the past week, last week, actually, when uh, news broke about amazing discovery in archaeology, a charred, burned-out, tiny little scroll of the Old Testament. It was found a while ago, but it was dated as being one of the oldest pieces of scripture ever found of the Old Testament. And when first discovered, it was thought the writing that was within this scroll would never be legible, because it was so damaged by fire. But by the magic of modern technology, scientists were somehow able to scan and virtually unroll this scroll and translate the text. This was announced just less than two weeks ago. And you know what they found inside as they were able to peer inside of this charred scroll? What they found were the first two chapters of the book of Leviticus. And the content of those chapters, what was most amazing was the contents of those chapters were identical in every detail, down to the dot, down to every consonant of what is called the Masoretic Text. The Masoretic Text is a much younger collection of texts from which we currently use to translate our Old Testament. And the significance of this is that God preserves His Word. Here's a much older testimony of, of Scriptures recently discovered that, that has not, God's Word has not changed. He preserves His Word. Even new discoveries are showing that God has preserved His Word throughout the centuries. And God is doing what Jesus says here. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus has not come to destroy the Old Testament Scriptures or cause us to forget them. Rather, Jesus says He has come to fulfill them. Alternative translations might say complete or consummate. But what does it mean? How does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament scriptures? And, of course, what implications does that have for us today? Well, there's all sorts of categories of Old Testament scripture. Let's walk through a few. First, there's Old Testament prophecy. Prophecy is foretelling about what God is going to do or warnings or judgments for his people. And much of the prophetic writing in the Old Testament concerned the coming of a Messiah. Approximately somewhere around 300 
specific prophecies about the Messiah. And Jesus' life matched each and every one of these over 300 prophecies perfectly. From the town in which he was born to the life in which he lived, the ministry he had, the death he died. Jesus' life and ministry had perfectly fulfilled every prophetic foretelling about what the Messiah would do. That's one way that Jesus fulfilled the prophetic scriptures. But what about all the stories? There's all these stories, too, in the Old Testament. The Old Testament narrative. Narratives about the Israelites and their battles and their kings and their successes and their failures. How did Jesus fulfill all of those stories? Well, he fulfilled them when you realize that all those stories point forward towards Christ. See, the Bible is one big, grand narrative, and all fits together. It all tw- tells one massive, redemptive story. Yes, there are hundreds of little stories kind of peppered on its pages throughout, but they all describe in one form, one fashion, God's redemptive story, how he is rescuing a fallen humanity, how he's solving the problem of sin through Jesus. And so many of the Old Testament narrative stories, they are purposeful pictures or foreshadowing of Christ and of his, his redemptive work. And so Jonah was in the belly of a whale for three days, just as Jesus was in the tomb for three days. God rescued a family, Noah and his family, through the flood, just as Jesus rescues a remnant of mankind through the flood of sin and suffering that is in this world. Or Israel was given king after king after king after king after king. All weren't perfect. All had failures in their own way. But now Jesus has come as the ultimate and perfect king. He fulfills the story of Israel's longing for that perfect an ultimate king. Or throughout the Old Testament, we see evil spirits just constantly tempting and causing havoc for God's people. But Jesus has come now, and he has ultimately defeated the forces of evil, thus bringing closure to this long story of all throughout the Bible of evil forces that oppose God, that oppose his kingdom. In other words, it's all about him. All these Old Testament narrative stories, they all point in some form or fashion to Jesus. And Jesus has fulfilled and brought closure and completion to all these stories that are happening all throughout the Bible. The Old Testament narrative is fulfilled in Christ. But what about the Old Testament law? All these rules and regulations and things that God's people are to follow, this one's a little bit more difficult because we read the old examples of law in the Old Testament. There are some we say, oh, well, clearly we need to follow those today. But then there's others we read and we're like, I don't know if we really need to worry about that today. How do we decide? How do we discern which ones have relevance and which ones don't? Well, the answer to that is actually found as you think about how Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament law. So, Working into this, let me share with you first just a collection of verses from the book of Leviticus, some examples of Old Testament law. Let me just show you a bunch of examples of, of what we find throughout the Old Testament. So, examples like this. You shall not steal. You shall not lie to one another. Okay, we read that. We say, well, that seems pretty important. It seems like we should probably continue to follow that law today, right? Or moving on, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. Or another, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Another very important law. Seems like we should follow those, shouldn't we? But then we see this example. You shall not sow your field with two types of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two types of material. Now, how many of you are wearing a garment today that is a cotton polyester blend? (laughs) Are you in violation of God's word in some way? We're moving on. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. Anybody here inked up? Got any of that going on? Or, you shall keep my Sabbath and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Who here sometimes has to work on Sundays? 
Or the wages of a hired worker shall not remain you with you all night until morning. So those of you, maybe you are business owners, you employ people, do you pay them every day before they go home? Seems like if we're to literally follow this verse, that would be the thing to do. Or when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. The thing is, I don't see many farmers around here kind of leaving a buffer zone around their fields. They farm it all. Or if anyone injures his neighbor as he is done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given, a person shall be given to him. I have to confess, sometimes I think my kids still believe that this law is still in effect. When I find them both laying on the ground crying, whining, he hit me, he hit me first. They're just fulfilling this law. Good for them. (laughs) Or how about this one? The pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh. You shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. This is one of the saddest verses in the entire Old Testament. Because it's saying, no bacon. Right? Or if anyone sins unintentionally and in the Lord's commandments, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. This last command is one of hundreds regarding sacrifices. And constantly the Old Testament Uh, contains instructions about making sacrifices or practicing certain festivals, certain feasts. Now, what do we do with all this? Clearly, we don't feel the need to obey all of it, right? I mean, who here is okay with bacon? Who here is wearing a cotton synthetic blend shirt today? We also think that we shouldn't lie. We shouldn't steal. We shouldn't cover it. We shouldn't defame God's name. So how does a New Testament Christian wade through and discern what has relevance for their life and what does not? Well, one way to help us understand this is to realize that there are different categories of the Old Testament law. And so for the purposes of this morning, let me just break the Old Testament law down into three broad categories. And we'll see that Jesus has fulfilled these three different categories of the Old Testament law in different ways, which helps us then discern how do we make sense of it. So categories of the Old Testament law, three I'm going to talk about today. First, there is the civil law. Civil law. Now, the civil law includes rules and regulations that were very specific for the time, the setting in which the Israelites lived. So there are rules for society that covered all sorts of minutiae of daily life. So plant your fields in this way, treat your oxen in this way, build your homes this way, care for your slaves in this way. If your brother dies, care for his wife this way. A lot of it was kind of governmental in nature. So install these kind of leaders over the people, or if this crime is committed, apply this punishment to that set up this particular system of justice for the people. And these civil laws, they were intended for the earthly kingdom of Israel. Guidance from God from how this earthly nation should live, how their lives, how their society should be structured. And when we read these laws today, we don't feel much of a burden to handle our fields or to manage our oxen, their livestock, in the same manner as described in the Old Testament. We certainly don't follow the same penal system of justice, do we? We don't execute people for blasphemy. When somebody commits adultery, don't take them out and stone them anymore. So we clearly don't feel the obligation to apply all these civil laws to ourselves. But why? Because Jesus has fulfilled these civil laws. And here's how he has fulfilled the civil law, by creating a new kingdom. The civil law is fulfilled by the creation of a new kingdom. You see, these Old Testament civil laws, they were purposed for the kingdom of Israel, a kingdom of which, to which none of us currently belong. God's people are no longer part of the kingdom of Israel. It's kind of like... When I got married, I entered into 
uh, to a degree, my wife's household, okay? And, you know, when we're with her family, there's a certain set of rules we kind of have to follow when I enter into her home or family. Just, and when we go to my home, there's, or my family of upbringing, there's, you know, different rules, different kind of standards, expectations. So take, for example, opening gifts on Christmas morning. Now, my family opens our gifts in a nice, controlled, respectable manner. We take our time. We kind of show each other what each other got. We give thanks along the way. Oh, look at that. That's nice. We take coffee breaks. We appreciate the morning at a leisurely place. But my wife's family, historically, has been totally different. It's kind of like an explosive, chaotic race to see who can finish first. It's like utter pandemonium. There's yelling and screaming, wrapping paper flying everywhere. It's hard to follow anything. It's just this one big, intense, overwhelming moment rather than a nice, controlled present opening. <laughs> now, of course, my wife and I, we have debated the merits of these two approaches. And I know, of course, which approach is far more reasonable and respectable. But when we enter into her household for Christmas or with her family, we do it her way. Because the rules of her household are what apply. The, the rules of my old household don't apply in that setting. And this is, analogy, I think, is very true for much of the civil law as well. Jesus has created for God's people a new kingdom, a better kingdom, a far more expansive and perfect kingdom. It's the kingdom Jesus is referring to in Matthew chapter 5 when he talks about the kingdom of heaven. All of God's people are now citizens in this new kingdom. They no longer need to follow the civil laws and requirements of the old kingdom. Those laws, they just don't make sense anymore. And this new kingdom is far different than the earthly kingdom of Israel. It is not bound by a specific geography. It is not bound by a specific people group. It is not defined by a specific language that everybody speaks. Rather, the kingdom of heaven includes people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. It extends across the globe from horizon to horizon. It even extends up into heaven itself. So the kingdom of God includes the earth and the heavens. And Jesus has ushered in this new kingdom, which perfectly fulfills all the promises of the old kingdom. Everything that the old kingdom was trying to do, it is accomplished in full and complete and perfect measure in the new kingdom. And thus, the Old Testament civil law is fulfilled. It's no longer something that we literally have to follow, as we are now citizens of a new, much, much better kingdom. That's how Jesus fulfills this first category of Old Testament law, the civil law, by creating a new kingdom. Here's the second category, the religious and symbolic law. Religious and symbolic law. Now, the Old Testament contains all hundreds of commands regarding how the Israelites were to do two things, how they were to cultivate a right relationship with God, and this was, happened through making sacrifices and through conducting certain festivals and feasts and um, practicing certain rituals of cleansing and going to the temple to make sacrifices for atonement, all to cultivate the right relationship with God. They also were to uh, have symbolic, physical demonstrations of their faith. This is why they were forbidden to wear clothing made with two types of fabric. They were instructed to wear clothing woven with only one type of fabric because by wearing clothing with just one type of fabric, they demonstrated to all the pagans around them that they worshiped the one true God. It's why eating bacon was forbidden because pigs have a hoof that is split into two parts while cattle has one solid Hoof. And the Israelites were not to eat pork or any animal that had a split hoof into two parts, but only animal with a solid unified hoof. And this was to symbolically demonstrate to the world around them that they worshiped the one true God rather than their attention divided and split among multiple deities. It's why they weren't supposed to have tattoos. 
because that's what all the other pagan religions did. So by not having tattoos, the Israelites differentiated themselves from those pagan groups and said, no, we worship the one true God. And so the Israelites had all sorts of religious practices and restrictions put upon them, and all of them were either to symbolically demonstrate their allegiance to God or to somehow maintain a right relationship with God, primarily through a sacrificial system. But Jesus' ministry fulfilled the religious and the symbolic law. You see, before Christ, the high priest had to enter continually into the temple to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. They needed to continually make efforts to soften and to smooth over their relationship with the Lord through sacrifices. But all these sacrifices, they were flawed. They were insufficient because they couldn't really deal with the real problem of sin. The Old Testament sacrifices, I like to say, they're like whiteout. You know what whiteout is, right? It's that old antiquated technology we used to use to kind of paint over mistakes. It's like white correction fluid. Basically, what you do, you just kind of paint over the mistake. But the problem with whiteout is that it never really gets rid of mistakes, does it? It just covers them over, sometimes behind a big clumpy mess. But the mistake is still there. It's just hidden. It's less obvious. It's less egregious to a degree, less problematic. And the Old Testament sacrificial system was merely white out for people's sins. It never really solved the problem. It just kind of covered over and somewhat hid the issue so that God could, to a degree, relate to his people. And this is why the people had to continually offer sacrifices over and over and over and over again, because the sacrifices just kind of covered over the offenses. They didn't resolve them. But Jesus' sacrifice is far better than the Old Testament sacrificial system is like whiteout. Jesus' sacrifice is like an eraser. It completely removes the problem. Gone. Vanished. No more. Erased. Your sin has vanished in God's sight because of Jesus' work. If you believe in him, your sin has been transferred to his account away from yours. Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament law for sacrifices and for rituals by first becoming our great high priest and then also by becoming the perfect sacrifice that finally removed, not just covered over, but removed the problem of sin. Consider Hebrews chapter 9 that says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So Christ is our high priest who entered once for all to make a sacrifice, and that sacrifice was his own blood. What did that sacrifice accomplish? Did it accomplish temporary appeasement as all the Old Testament sacrifices did? No, it accomplished, it says here, eternal redemption. With that accomplishment, the Old Testament Testament religious and sacrificial laws are no longer needed. They are fulfilled in Christ. Also in Hebrews, we see this. And speaking of God, does away with the first in order to establish the second And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily to service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This is what Jesus meant when he died on the cross. And he says, it is finished. No more did the people of God need to appease him through rituals or outward symbols. The new kingdom is so much richer and better than the old kingdom. No more bloody rituals. No more unreasonable food restraints or burdensome symbolic laws. Imagine Bethel, if every time you came here to worship, you needed to bring some animal with you. 
And you rolled in here each Sunday morning with your doves and your goats and your oxen or your lambs, along with maybe some satchels of grain or vegetables. And what we're doing is we're just killing all these animals. And there's blood pouring everywhere. There's a big altar, and we're just burning carcasses on that altar. And you're standing there hoping that your sacrifice would be good enough to grant you some favor with God. Does that sound like a fun way to do church? See, Jesus has freed us from those things because he has fulfilled the purposes that those things had in the first place. Isn't that good news, church? That is great news. That is liberating news, extremely comforting news. Under the Old Testament law, God's people were so insecure. They were always wondering if their sacrifices were good enough or frequent enough. But Christ has fulfilled that burden. Now God's people experience a wonderful, comforting freedom. We don't have to worry if we've done enough. We don't have to worry if our sacrifices are sufficient enough because Christ is sufficient. He's sufficient in ways that all the Old Testament religious and symbolic law never could have been. We're not justified by our feeble and limited efforts. We are justified by the Son of God himself so that all that's required of us is faith in his work. This is what Galatians 3 says when it conveys, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The religious and symbolic law was a temporary guardian until Christ came and he fulfilled that law. And he did that by fulfilling the entire sacrificial system in himself and his own sacrifice. So the religious and symbolic law, it is fulfilled by the consummation of the sacrificial system in Jesus. Aren't you thankful for that, church? What tremendous grace, tremendous freedom. What joy is afforded to us as these cumbersome, burdensome aspects of the law are fulfilled in Christ. It's such a privilege to be a child of the New Testament kingdom of God. And so in Christ, two categories of the law are fulfilled and no longer burdensome to us, the civil law and also the religious and the symbolic law. But there's one more category of Old Testament law. I'm going to call that today the moral law. The moral law. And the moral law includes things like the Ten Commandments. Don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat, don't covet, don't commit adultery. But it's not just the Ten Commandments. There's all sorts of moral instructions all throughout the Old Testament Things given to the Israelites about this is how you should relate to one another and, and to God. Commands like, you know, love your neighbor, be generous with your resources, show compassion to those who suffer, uh, maintain self-control in your life, worship God above all else. And the moral law is distinguished from these other categories of law in, in one way. You know it's a moral law because the moral law is rooted in the character of God himself. So the moral law communicates to God's people what God himself would do. What God himself, in fact, does. That is what the moral law is. And by extension, then, it, it communicates what God's people must and should do as well. Thus, the moral law are commands that transcend time. They are still in effect today because they are based on the character of God himself, who does not change from kingdom to kingdom. And since these laws are based on God's character, who does not change, then we should conclude that these are requirements that are, that are likewise applicable to God's people today. So if it was necessary then for God's people not to lie, it's necessary now for God's people not to lie. 
If it was necessary then for God's people not to have idols, it's necessary now for God's people not to have idols, even if those idols sometimes take different forms. If it was necessary then for God's people to be sexually pure, it's necessary now for God's people to be sexually pure. If it's necessary then for God's people to worship and prioritize God above all else, it's necessary now for God's people to worship him and prioritize him above all else. So if the moral law remains in effect for us today, then how did Jesus fulfill it? He fulfilled the other categories of the law by bringing in something better, bringing in something richer. And he does the same thing with the moral law. He does it in two ways, really. He does it first by becoming the first person who obeys it perfectly. See, the, Jesus is the only person who has perfectly fulfilled the moral law in his life. There is no sin in Christ. There is no moral transgression. Every precept of the moral law he kept Every command of the moral law he obeyed perfectly. Jesus faced temptations all around him, but never once did he sin. Never once did he fail to perfectly comply with God's moral law. The book of Hebrews again talks about this when it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus was presented with countless opportunities to break and violate God's moral law, but he never gave in to those, not once. Never once violated the moral law of God, and this is one way in which he fulfilled it, by obeying it perfectly in his life. He fulfilled the requirements of the moral law, but there's another way that he's fulfilled it, and this way has immense relevance for us. He's fulfilled the moral law by the perfect picture of his life, but also by the complete revelation of God's moral obligations for mankind. See, Jesus brought about a further dimension, an explanation to the moral law. He expanded on it. He clarified it. And thus, he fulfilled the moral law by bringing it to completion. So the moral law, you see, it was gradually being unveiled throughout the Old Testament. There's this concept in theology called progressive revelation which means that God just doesn't immediately tell you at the beginning of time, like, here's who I am and everything I'm going to do and everything you need to know. He gradually reveals that over time. So he gradually revealed over the time how he's going to rescue people through Messiah and that that was Jesus. He also just gradually reveals over time his requirements of his people and who he is himself, his character. The moral law is gradually revealed over time. And so Jesus, in his ministry, he expands on this moral law. And he brings further definition to it. He brings further clarity to what is needed and expected of God's people, what is needed for full righteousness, and he completes, he fulfills the giving of the moral law. And much then what follows in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus doing this very thing. We see in the cha- all throughout chapter 5 this construction. You have heard it said, but now I say to you. Jesus is referencing the Old Testament law and then expanding on it and building upon it, thus completing it. So, for example, in verse 21, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Notice what Jesus is doing here. First, he's talking about the external act itself, saying you shall not murder. But then Jesus takes it further, and he focuses on the heart. He says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. In other words, it's not good enough that you just have the, that you not murder anybody. You also ought not to be angry as well. It also depends on your heart. Or more, moving a few verses further, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So here Jesus is acknowledging that adultery is wrong. 
But then he takes it to a deeper level, and he says it's not just about the outward act of adultery. It's also about the heart. It's about the impurity and the lust in the heart. It's not good enough that you not physically cheat on your spouse. You also ought not to lust after anybody as well. And moving on, verse 38, he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him, the other also. Here Jesus is referencing part of the Old Testament law that says if you're harmed or offended, you have the right to demand justice. But then he turns it around and he says that love is the better response. So if somebody insults you, don't return the insult. Instead, show meekness and kindness and humility and love. Or a few verses further, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, what's interesting about this one is that nowhere in the New Testament are God's people instructed to hate their enemies. They're commanded to hate sin, they're commanded to hate evil, as God himself hates evil. They're not ever commanded to hate their enemies. So, what Jesus is doing here, he's not directly referring to Old Testament scripture, instead he's referring to a common teaching of the day, which actually missed the mark, which actually did not accurately accurately reflect God's moral law. And so he corrects it, saying you should not hate your enemies, but you should love them and pray for them. So there are four examples in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus brings greater and fuller clarity and fullness to the Old Testament moral law. And notice what is happening in each and every instance. In each instance, Jesus is substantially raising the bar of what is moral and what is just and what is right. So instead now of just not committing adultery, now God's moral law requires that people not even lust. Now instead of not murdering anyone, now God's moral law requires that people not even have anger or hatred in their hearts towards others. Now instead of just relating to people fairly, now God's moral law requires that, that, that people relate in expressions of love, even if that love is undeserved. So what's happening here? The, The moral requirements upon God's people are being ratcheted up. They're becoming more intense, more difficult. So now it's not just enough to do the right thing. Now you have to to feel the right thing. It's not just now about having the right external behavior. It's about having the right heart. The internal expressions of obedience are just as important as the outward external ones. And this teaching, of course, is in direct assault to the religious leaders of the day. We all know the scribes and the Pharisees, teachers of the law, right? They were obsessed with external appearances. They worked incredibly hard to have the right image. They have all the external displays of righteousness to put on a good show. Many of them earnestly tried to follow the details of the law in every possible way. See, the religious leaders of the day, righteousness was synonymous with legalism. Righteousness was found by precisely following the details of the law. But Jesus teaches here it's not just about the details. It's about the heart. It's about what happens inside a person that is significant, not just the outside. I'll draw the analogy of politicians and humanitarian workers. There's exceptions to the stereotypes, of course, but generally speaking, one criticism that's often levied against politicians is that they're always trying to look the part, to appear politically correct, to be doing everything that is admirable and noble, all so that they get into places of power. So they might, they might contribute to charity, they might go work at a soup kitchen, handing out, feeding the homeless, but it's all calculated expressions of righteousness, all for the purpose of scoring some points, winning some favor, earning some votes, 
but humanitarian workers, on the other hand, who go to the jungles of Africa or serve in the desert of Somalia to make great sacrifices of themselves to help those who are hurting. They seem to be less motivated about outward appearances. They often seem to be more motivated by the heart. And so they do the right thing, and they do the right thing with the right motive because they're driven by their heart rather than the politician or the Pharisee or the legalist who often does the right thing but does it with the wrong motive. So you see, in teaching this way, Jesus now greatly expands and broadens and clarifies and intensifies the moral law of God. So much so that he says at the end of Matthew chapter 5, he says this, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus works through all these examples of the moral law. Don't lust, don't hate, don't be angry, don't be self-righteous. And then he says, be perfect. Be perfect as God himself is perfect. And in that one sentence, Jesus now summarizes perfectly the fundamental difference between the two kingdoms. The expectations of good enough and the expectation of perfection. You see, the Old Testament Jews and the Pharisees, they they never could be perfect. They knew that. That's why they constantly had to go and offer sacrifices for their sins, just like everyone else. The standard of morality in the Old Testament kingdom was not perfection. It was just good enough. And if you're a Pharisee, your standard of perfection is probably just better than everybody else. But that's not enough for the new kingdom. The moral law of the new kingdom is magnified incredibly all the way up to God-like perfection, which any good Jew or Pharisee listening to Jesus' teaching here knew would have been impossible to attain. So while Jesus fulfills some parts of the of the law, which results in freedom. He frees people from all, so many of the civil and religious and symbolic laws of the Old Testament. We, we don't need to come and offer goats as sacrifices. We can get tattoos. We can eat bacon. But here now the bar is raised infinitely high. So high that even the most self-righteous of us all can never attain it. And Jesus acknowledges that in verse 20 of chapter 5 when he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to free you, church. I'm going to free you from the civil and the religious and the symbolic law, but now I'm going to ratchet up the moral law so high that you need to be even more perfect than the Pharisees and the most perfect-looking people on earth. The standard of the moral law in the Old Testament was good enough, but the standard of the moral law in the New Testament kingdom is perfection. But the irony by that is that the New Kingdom standard, it's actually more liberating, less burdensome than the old. Because the perfection is not achieved in the New Testament kingdom through laborious effort. It is not achieved through strict legalistic adherence to an unending set of rules. No, it is achieved by Christ himself. It is achieved by the work that Christ has done on behalf of his people. So consider Galatians chapter 2. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You see, nobody can achieve the perfection that Christ requires, but he has achieved it. And he offers to share that justifying perfection with anybody who has faith in him. And that is liberating good news. Yes, the demands of God have been ratcheted up, but he doesn't demand anything that he himself cannot meet. Grace that God affords his people is vast 
and absolute. And oh, how we need that grace. You see, Jesus' escalation of the moral law demonstrates people's need for a Savior, doesn't it? And the moral law is just, the bar is just good enough. Some people can actually achieve it. But when the bar is perfection, nobody achieves it. And so we all need him. No one is perfect but Christ. And he shares his righteousness with anybody who calls on his name. To any who place their faith in Christ, not in their own works, not in their own self-justifying efforts of adherence to moral law, but in Christ, in the one, the person who justifies those who are faithful. So I ask, have you done that today? Surely in a room of this size, there are people who have not come to the point of decision where they really have leaned upon and depended on Christ for their righteousness rather than their own works, rather than just trying to be a good person. Their standard, even for themselves, is just good enough rather than the perfection. But you realize how high God has set the bar. It breaks you. And it turns your heart to faith, realizing that Christ is the only one who can meet that standard for you. So have you done that? You haven't done that? There'll be people up at the front, prayer counselors, other leaders here that would love to talk with you, perhaps someone you came with today or a church leader, get in touch with them. Be delighted to talk to you about how you can submit your life to Christ and receive the freedom that he provides you of just always trying to be good enough. But for the Christian, aren't you thankful for all the ways that Jesus has fulfilled the law? Aren't you thankful for the new kingdom realities we get to enjoy? We get to eat bacon. We don't have to make bloody sacrifices week after week. We don't have to earn favor with God. We have the security of knowing that our righteousness is secured in Christ. Still, the truth of God's grace, while it is incredible, it can often be an excuse. Because we know that God is gracious, and so we don't feel burdened to strive after this perfection often lack a yearning to do everything that we can to have a righteous life because we rationalize. Oh, God is gracious. He's just going to forgive me anyways. But that is a terrible excuse in rationalization. The moral law is still in in place for God's people in God's new kingdom. And it's more intense than it ever has been before. Therefore, we must all fight for righteousness. We must all strive after perfection. Yes, we relish and enjoy in the freedoms that God has given to us, the burdens he has released from us of now being people of the new kingdom. But let us not use the freedoms of the new kingdom, the kingdom of the heart, to be an excuse for laziness or complacency. Don't move to either extreme of the spectrum where one extreme you're trying to earn favor with God and you're trying to meet every single law or the other extreme where you don't care because God is gracious and forgiving. Don't be complacent about the grace he has given you. Instead, strive hard after Christ's likeness, not just by having the right actions, but also by having the right heart as well. This is a difficult battle for sure, but it is a fight that was worth it because it brings so much joy. It brings the joy of God's pleasure upon our lives. It brings the joy of our lives to simply being easier because we have less self-induced pain because of our own sin. It brings the joy just to the personal knowledge of knowing you're growing into Christ's likeness. Christ has done so much for us by freeing us from the burdens of the law. Let us then in return glorify him as we strive earnestly, zealously to have actions and hearts that are fully pleasing to Christ. This is the burden 
placed upon the New Testament kingdom and God's people. And it is our joy and also our obligation to pursue that for his glory.